Morning, everyone. How you guys doing? Good to see you. If you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Thessalonians. It's a short, short little book at the end of your Bible. We'll get to that in a little bit, so you can just uh, kind of put a bookmark there for now. But um, we're really in a, in a really, really important series in the life of our church. I'm really glad you're here. This series is about who we are. This series is about who you are as a follower of Jesus. And about 12 or so years ago, leadership really wanted to put into words specifically the type of disciple Southlands feels called to make. And so we came up with these four attributes or categories or characteristics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That is that they are gospel-centered, they are spirit-empowered, they are in community, and they are on mission. Gospel-centered means that we look to the love of God and the grace of God that brought us our salvation as a model and an empowerment of how we love and serve other people. Spirit-empowered means that we don't look for resources in ourself to love and serve God, but we are connected through the Spirit to God who helps us in all things. That we do things by the Spirit's leading, by the Spirit's power, by the Spirit's direction. Being in community means we are pushing back against the cultural tidal wave of isolation and loneliness and go it aloneness that our culture is propagating. That we say, no, we are called to be a family, which is the main metaphor the Bible uses to describe the church. And we care for one another. We love one another. We serve one another. And finally, that we're on mission, that all of that I just described, it's not for us alone. It's not so we can have a little nice God party, exclusive VIP celebration of the resurrection. It's so that that love and that goodness and that transformation would go to all people, those in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, and even all the way across the world to Japan. And I'm glad you're here because today we are really looking at the foundation of all four of these characteristics. We're really looking at the engine that makes the cargo. We're looking at the parents that lead the family. We are looking at the thing that must be present in order for all the other things to line up appropriately. And that is how the gospel teaches us to serve others, how the gospel works in us to change us as followers of Jesus. But before we jump in, would you join me in a moment of prayer? Lord, thank you for this opportunity yet again to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, to come and to hear the word of God taught and preached and to find joy and comfort and life and peace in your words. Lord, I wanna pray for my brothers and sisters who are going through a difficult time this morning. Lord, they are facing adversity and difficulty and they don't really know how to get through it. I pray, God, that you would breathe life into them this morning. You would bring courage and hope into them this morning. I pray for my brothers and sisters that aren't living in line with your gospel. They are really in this season serving themselves. They're really in this season focused on their own goals. And God, I pray that you would gently and compassionately awake them to the reality of your love that compels them to look outward to serve others. And so God, we all equally come, as many have said before, as beggars in need of bread. 
And that bread is your word that feeds our soul and directs our lives. And so God, would you give us ears to hear from the Bible this morning that it would guide us in all that we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the word gospel is used over a hundred times in the Bible, and it simply translates good news. The gospel is good news, and it's not just ordinary news. I mean, it's really good news. I mean, it is life-altering, soul-transforming, eternity-changing news. In 1949, there was a man named John Currier, and he was convicted of murder, and he was sentenced to prison. And years and years down the road, he actually worked his way up to parole, and so he was paroled at a work farm in Nashville, Tennessee. And he began to live out the rest of his sentence on this work farm. The conditions were brutal, and um, it was only a minor step up from his previous sentence, but the case was reevaluated in the state that he was sentenced in and his sentence was actually commuted and they let him go free. And so the judge wrote a letter and he sent it off to the, the work farm in Nashville, Tennessee, but the letter never made it. Historians don't know why, but somehow this letter never made it to the work farm. And so he was never released. And John Courier worked for 10 more years of his life in chains, working on that work farm. Now, there was a parole officer 10 years after that letter who discovered it in some of his research, and he just could not believe (laughs) that John Currier was still working on this farm in Nashville, Tennessee. And so he got in his car and he drove and he showed the letter and the official documents and they gave him permission to go to John. And they said, John, I have good news for you. You are free. That is the type of good news, church, that we're talking about. We're talking about good news that changes everything. We're talking about news that comes to us and says, you are living a life in bondage to your own desires and your own sinful cravings, and you can be free, that you are separated from God and the life and the joy that God gives, and now you can be connected to that source to find joy and find peace for all of eternity. So to be gospel-centered then is to allow that reality, the reality of what God has done, to permeate every part of who you are. Like kneading yeast into dough. It just, it's worked through in how we think. It's worked through in how we behave. It's worked through in our finances. It's worked through in how we treat our spouses. It's worked through in how we treat our coworkers. It's worked through in how we use the internet. It's worked through in how we meet and interact with strangers. Everything, the truth of what God has done for us permeates us and changes us. This means that if you claim that God is gracious, guess how you are to treat other people? With grace. This means that if you claim that God is loving, guess how you are to treat those who take advantage of you? As loving. If you are are, are claiming that, man, I have been forgiven by God, well, in that same breath, you are saying that I am going to be the one who forgives. That's what it means to be gospel-centered. It means to allow the truth of the the, the crucifixion and the ascension and the resurrection of Christ to define everything. At the end of the day, gospel-centered is really just being integrous. It's really just bringing in line the things that you say you believe with the way that you actually act. And it is so detrimental to yourself and to others when those things are not in line. 
I got a job in 2013 as a server at BJ Restaurant here in the lovely Brea, California. And I was excited about the job. I was an intern here at Southlands and working there part-time. And for the first time ever, I really showed up to work with one goal, tell people about Jesus. That was my goal for the first time in my working life, non-ministry life. And so I was building relationships and sharing the gospel. And I soon realized that there was another employee server who was carrying around his Bible. And so he would, on his breaks or in downtime, he'd be reading his Bible and he was telling people about Jesus. He was proselytizing, he was praying for people. And I initially thought, this is great. This is good news. And so I hung out with him one day and I, I basically said, let's become allies in this. Let's work together to tell people about Jesus. And we prayed for a while. It was a really significant time. But over the next few weeks and months, his character began to surface. And he was rude. He was condescending. He was prideful. He was lazy. And he had slept with multiple women who worked there at BJ's. And I began to realize, wait a minute, this person that I thought was an ally is actually my chief enemy because he is communicating a gospel that is not accurate. It is not integrous. It does not align with the truth of Jesus. And so church, being gospel-centered is not an optional extra. It is the very fabric of salvation. It's, it's treating people and letting how God has treat you translate to others is what God has called us to do. So how does this happen? How, how do you bring into alignment the things that you believe and the ways that you act? Well, I wanna introduce you to a paradigm that's not mine. It's from a pastor in Albuquerque. Um, his name's Skip Heidezig, and he, in a, a sermon on the gospel, gave us these kind of three stages for gospel saturation. He didn't call it that, but I'm gonna call it that. It was like a throwaway line, and I was like, that is genius. And so I wanna introduce you to these three stages of gospel saturation. That is to say, the process by which we live out the gospel. And he said this in kind of a throwaway line at the beginning of a sermon. The gospel comes to you, it works in you and it flows through you. Mic drop. That is so good. The gospel comes to you. It works in you and then it flows from you. And I want to take a few minutes and just unpack specifically what this means. And specifically, I want to look at serving other people. I want to take the action of serving other people. I want to talk about how Christ has served us and talk about how we can work that through in our life in these three stages. So firstly, the gospel comes to you. This is that all-important moment when you hear the gospel preached and you respond where somebody says you can be saved. God can forgive you and you can have right relationship with God if you repent. And so you repent. The gospel has come to you. Christ moved towards you and freed you from sin and forgave you. It came to you. This step mostly happens with our mind. Mostly happens with our mind as we think about these realities. And I wanna look at Jesus's beautiful example of serving others in John uh, 13 to kind of unpack this gospel saturation. So this is what John 13 says. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
During supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And when he poured the water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is a beautiful historic picture of how Jesus comes to us as a servant. He comes not to receive honor and to force people to worship him, but he comes humbly to stoop down to wash people's feet. Those of you familiar with this passage and is often preached will know that in this context, people wore sandals and they walked around on a dirty road where animals also would travel. And so your feet were disgusting and you would eat laying down, reclining at tables, how the Bible says it. And so people's feet are not in your face, but they're around you. And the stuff that you step on when you wear sandals on a dirty road where animals also walk, you just don't want in the presence of your meal. Let's say it that way. And so there was often a servant who would serve and they were a slave of the household or of the owner of the house. And as you entered, they would wash your feet. Well, somehow the slave wasn't present that day. For whatever reason, maybe he was quarantined because he came in contact with COVID um, or maybe he had other reasons, but he wasn't there. And so the disciples before this meal, before this last supper, Jesus' last meal with his disciples, they're looking around. Who's gonna wash our feet? I mean, we're Jewish. We can't eat with dirty feet. It's not only unsanitary, but it's against our law, really. And I don't know how much time passed, but... Not long after that awkward moment, Jesus himself undresses, ties a towel around his waist and begins to wash his disciples' feet. Oh, what a beautiful picture of the heart of Christ for us, of the ultimate servant who stoops low to cleanse us of our sin, to take on human form, to die the death of a criminal so that you and I can have life. This is the first stage of the gospel is as Jesus comes to you as a servant and you respond to that cleansing. In the second stage, the gospel works in you. So in the first stage is mostly with your mind. The second stage is mostly with your heart or your emotions or your will. It's when you really actually start to believe that God loves you. Not like, yeah, 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 I know. The answer is Jesus. God loves me but like you feel God's love deep inside of you. You know, when you adopt a child, particularly from uh, some sort of institution where there was food insecurity and that child in their previous condition, they didn't know if there was gonna be enough food any given day. So they would learn habits of hoarding and hiding food. It's very common, especially in international adoption. And they would do this as a survival mechanism because they didn't know if they were going to have enough food on any given day. And oftentimes, adopted parents will report, and if, if they haven't uh, been prepared enough, they'll be surprised that there's like food hidden all over the child's room, <laughs> in the pillowcases and under the dresser. And just they're like, I can't get my kid to stop hiding food. See, that child knows that they've been adopted, but they don't yet know it. You know what I'm saying? They haven't, it hasn't yet sat with them that I will be provided for. I will be loved. I will be taken care of no matter what. 
And that's the second stage of the gospel as it works in us that we know that we know that we know that God loves us. And when, when you really receive that in the deepest parts of who you are, it absolutely transforms you. It is quite interesting that John tells us the reason Jesus washed the disciples' feet. That doesn't happen often in the gospels. He says this, Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments and began to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus could wash his disciples' feet because he knew the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God. See, Jesus knew who he was. His identity was firmly fixed as a son of God. And out of his sonship, he was freed to radically serve other people. Jesus knew he was from God, so he didn't need the approval of others. Jesus could humble himself to the lowest place because he knew that God would exalt him to the highest place. When, when this truth starts to churn inside of you, it frees you to serve other people because you don't need something from them. I don't need approval from you because I have approval from God. I can serve you with no strings attached because I've been served by Christ. I cannot emphasize how pivotal this second stage of gospel saturation is. And it is often overlooked in the evangelical church. It is the slow time where we meditate on the word of God, where we sing the word of God, where we pray the word of God, where we work through the Psalms and we pray the Psalms, where we meditate on the richness of the gospel, those moments will transform you. Once that truth gets deep into your heart, you will never be the same. And that third stage, the gospel flows from you, is the result of the first two stages. They are a sequence. And if you start serving other people, without understanding who you are, you will only serve people to get something from them. It is only once we understand who we are and what God has done for us and we serve people that we can serve freely the way that Christ serves us. Listen to Jesus's own expectation of his disciples after he washes their feet. He says this, now that I your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. If you do them. Jesus saying, listen, I'm the king of the universe. <laughs> I made you. I made all things and I am stooping. I am humbling myself to serve you. You go and do likewise. And listen where the blessing is, church. The blessing is when you do this action. The fruit of a righteous life is not necessarily found in affirming theological truths. The fruit, the joy of following Jesus is when you start doing the stuff Jesus did. Why? Because Jesus is there. 
You wash people's feet as a metaphor to serve them at your own expense because that's where Jesus is right now. That's what Jesus is doing right now. He's serving people at his own expense. And so if you want to be and know the blessing of walking with God, you get on your knees and you serve people at your own expense and you will find Jesus there waiting to bless you and love you and know you. And so church, I want you to keep this three-stage paradigm of gospel saturation. Write it down or put a note in your phone or whatever you need to do. And I want you to begin to think through, even this week, where am I at in this season of life? And I don't think it's completely linear. I think you could be at stage one at one point, and then maybe stage three is what God's highlighting. And all of them are are kind of working at the same time, but there is a focus in each season for us. And God really wants to meet you by revealing to you his love. Now, what I want to do in the the rest of our time remaining is I want to give you an example of this, a real life example. So, so I gave you the example of Jesus serving. And now I want to give you an example of one of Jesus's followers serving. And hopefully the third stage in that process is that we would go out and serve. So Jesus to his followers, his followers to uh, a church. And then as we study that church and Paul's example, we would be empowered to do the same. So Let's read together Paul's example as he unpacks in 1 Thessalonians 2 how he served this church. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, about our coming to you. It is not proven to be purposeless. But although we suffered earlier and were mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of much opposition. For the appeal we made, it does not come from air or impurity or with deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we declare it. This is important. Not to please God, sorry, not to please people, but God who examines our hearts. The first thing we see is that the gospel teaches us to serve resiliently. As we look at Paul's example and how he loved this church, he came to this church before they had heard the gospel. He preached the gospel. Many uh, Greeks and Jews responded to the gospel and he stayed with them for a month and he left this healthy, thriving church plant. And he's now writing to them because he's heard a good report that it's going well with them. And um, he's writing here. And as we see how he loved them, we see that the gospel teaches us to serve with resilience. Now, when Paul says that, um, <laughs> it's just funny to me. He said, we were mistreated in Philippi. I have a different definition of mistreated. Paul was beaten with rods, thrown into prison, and chained to a wall. I have a different definition of what that is, and it's not mistreated. I've been mis- mistreated before, but I've never been beaten with rods, thrown into prison, and unjustly chained. But we see from Paul's example here that even that didn't stop him from continuing on in his missionary journey. He continued on to Thessalonica where he preached the gospel and this group of people responded. Now, I've, I've noticed in life that um, it's, it's easy to start serving people, but it's kind of hard to continue serving them, isn't it? I've noticed that for myself. I've noticed that here as I've led ministries here, people can start something. You can start a new friendship and a new relationship and you have a perspective on that person. 
You can sign up to engage on a serve team and have a strong commitment. But Paul in Galatians 6 says that we grow weary in doing good, that it's actually hard to keep at it, to keep grinding, to keep serving people, especially when they disappoint you, especially when you feel like they're not reciprocating the degree that you're giving to them. This is only compounded by the fact that Satan hates faithfulness. So even if you did get a little bit of steam and you were studying your commitments and you were responding to your family in love and you were, you were actually serving people, you, the gospel was flowing to you, you are now a target for Satan. Oh man, Daniel Chung, he's really, he served Southlands really well the last few years. He's been on staff and then he went on marketplace, but he remained steadfast in his elder. He made steadfast pastoring people. He served where people are needed. And he, he's raising his, his boys to love Jesus. He's growing in, in how he loves his wife. Daniel becomes a target for Satan. Satan does not like the way that Daniel's leading and loving his house and serving as an example in our church. A uh, 11th century monk said, said it this way. I think this is so profound. He said, perseverance alone is always attacked by the devil because it is the only virtue which has the assurance of being crowned. Perseverance is attacked by Satan because perseverance is the way that you receive your eternal glory. See, at times, love can grow dim, faith can fade, hope can be trust, but Revelation 3.21 says this, to the one who overcomes or perseveres or has resilience, I will grant to him the right to sit on my throne with me, just as I have overcome and sat down on mine. See, resilience is not an optional extra in the Christian faith. It is the very essence of how we serve God all the way through. And, and Paul gives us the secret of how to do that. He said he served not to please man, but to please God. And so as we encounter obstacles to serving faithfully, ultimately what we need to do is we need to get in the place where our service flows from us wanting to please God and respond to God for his resiliency towards us. See, because God puts up a, with a lot of our sin, a lot of our one step forward and two steps back spiritual growth. He puts up with a lot of moments where the spirit prompts us to do something and, and we don't respond right away. The Lord is resilient with us. And so when we receive that stage one, stage two, when we meditate on that, it helps us to stage three, serve others resiliently. The second thing that we see in this passage is that the gospel teaches us to serve selflessly. The gospel teaches us to serve selflessly. For we never appeared or came to you with flattering speech, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is our witness, nor to seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Although we could have imposed our weight as apostles of Christ, instead, we became little children among you. In the ancient world, there were a group of traveling entertainers. So you couldn't go to the movies back then. A lot of the modern entertainment we have, they didn't have back then, but they certainly had plenty of entertainment. One form was that there would be these itinerant 
speakers, rhetoricians, philosophers, and they would go from town to town, area to area, and they would entertain people. And they'd entertain people by memorizing Greek plays and by memorizing wisdom. They were called sophists. Um, And these sophists were notorious for putting on an eloquent performance using flattery to take money from the poor. It was just notorious that they would come and they would charge for their, they would charge high fees to come and listen to them and they would use their words. And so these two words, flattery and greed, are commonly used in the first century context to talk about the sophists. And these sophists were highly present in the area that Paul was ministering to. And so what Paul is doing right now is he's distancing himself from that type of ministry. He's saying, listen, I didn't come with flattery and with greed. Later on, he says, listen, I held down a day job. I literally, when I was with you, I was only with you for a month, church. I didn't charge you anything. Everything was free. And I would work Monday through Friday, manual labor, making tents, which was very, very difficult work back then. And then on the night, I would come in, I would teach the gospel in the church. And then on Sabbath, I would teach. And then I'd go back to work. He's saying, I I did not come with flattery or greed. I came to serve you. I came selflessly using my own hands to love and to serve you. I think most strikingly about this text is verse seven. Paul says, I could have come to impose my weight as an apostle. In an honor-shame culture in first century, first century Roman Empire, Paul could have come and said, okay, I'm the man. You're going to listen to me. I have the answers. So I'm going to need, you know, here's, uh, <laughs> here's my list of demands for the green room. I need to have, here's my rider. I need to have these types of snacks and this type of juice, and it needs to be this temperature. He, he could have he showed up like that. He could have imposed his weight because there was such a respect for authority back then. But he says, instead, I became like a little child. That is crazy. What a reversal of power. Paul is saying, naturally, I'm at the top as I come to you because I have spiritual authority. I could have ministered top down. But what I did instead is I came like a little child, humbly, gently, and I ministered from the bottom up. Church, that is such a compelling picture for us to treat every person we meet like they're the most important thing about the moment. That every person has something to contribute. Every person has something to give. This is so hard to do. (laughs) This is so hard to live this way. But I am thankful that we have many examples of this in our church. I think Kirk and Mandy are a beautiful example of what it means to serve. They have years of experience and knowledge and biblical insight. But when you interact with Kirk and Mandy, they are focused on you. They are here to serve you and to love you. I think about the Kennedys. The Kennedys also just have this softness when they serve people. And Steph experiences just an incredible amount of physical pain on a regular basis. Steph, you are so selfless. You, you would not know the degree of discomfort that you experience on a regular basis because you are so focused on caring for other people. You are such an example to us of Christ's selflessness in our church. And I, I could go on 
There's many of you, and I truly mean that, who live selflessly. Let us learn and spur one another on in this area. Where we, like Paul, we, we don't come to a relationship puffing out our chest and showing what we have to offer, but we come ready to listen humbly, ready to serve, ready, ready to give where is necessary. And lastly, through Paul's example of how the gospel penetrates our whole life, we see that the gospel teaches us to serve relationally. In this final section, Paul's going to unpack how we live and serve and exist as a family. As a family. Not as a consumer relationship, not as strangers, not as people we kind of care about, but family. And I think that Eugene Peterson's translation of this in the message really captures the tone of what Paul is getting at. And so I'm going to read from the message here in these last few verses. Listen to how relational Paul frames Christian faith and community. Even though we had some standing as apostles, we never threw our weight around or tried to come across as important with you or anyone else. We weren't aloof with you. We took you just as you were. We were never patronizing, never condescending. We cared for you the way a mother cares for her children. The word in the Greek there is a nursing mother. We loved you dearly, not content to just pass on the message. We wanted to give you our own hearts, and we did. You experienced it firsthand with each of you. We were like a father with his child, holding your hand, whispering encouragement, showing you step by step how to live well before God, who called us into his own kingdom, into this delightful life. Paul uses this striking image of a nursing mother to communicate the relational components of how we are to serve one another. Nursing is vulnerable, and it is a beautiful picture of how a mother gives of herself to her child, often at great cost to herself with pain and discomfort. And yet this is how God has loved us. And this is how we are called to love other people. As the net translation says, so we were happy to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own lives. Paul, at great cost, joyfully gave himself away to the Thessalonians. But we also serve one another as a father. I love this picture, holding your hand, whispering encouragement. Church, we need to whisper encouragement to one another all the time. Everyone in this room right now is in need of encouragement. And I, this line is, is probably my favorite, showing you step-by-step step how to live well before God. And as we close, I just want to make two applications from this very compelling picture of how we are to serve one another relationally. And the first, I think it has implications for our community, for our church community. We are called to share our life and to give our hearts away. I mean, I have experienced this in a lot of different ways, but this last season in life group, I have seen 
in my engage group, in the life group, I've seen people really care for one another. Moments where people share vulnerably and everything stops and we focus and we pray for that person. Moment where one person is experiencing the joy of the Lord and they've stepped out vulnerably to serve God and they're sharing and other people are affirming and encouraging them. Well done. Well done for living out your faith in that way. I have also experienced that directly from Alan and Rennell who lead this church, especially in my 20s. As they brought me in and cared for me, they, they took me hand in hand and showed me how to live well life with God. And I would just commend to us to hold this picture up often how, to, for you to reevaluate. How are you engaging in this community? Well, how do you not just show up for an engaged group, but how do you show up for an engaged group? And when you show up on Sunday, don't just show up for Sunday, which is amazing, but how are you showing up on Sunday? ready to give and ready to serve in the ways that God has for you. And, and lastly, I think this has implications for how we serve the marginalized, not just people in our community, but people on the margins of society, people who live in poverty or have put, been put at arm's length. You know, it is so easy to hold the poor at arm's length, to just keep them out of sight, out of mind. But that is not what God's called us to do. God isn't called us just to give them a hand out. He's actually called us to give them a hand up, to, to give of ourselves and to, to care for people who are on the margins. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is highlighting that we need to always be ready. As we're going about our day and we encounter someone who's been forgotten and pushed aside and is hurting, we need to pause and we need to care for them just as Christ has come and has cared for us. Man, I've seen this in profound ways as, as people have shifted their mindset to be available to serve relationally, especially people who are marginalized. My friends Brian and Bethany became foster parents in 2016. And by their own testimony, they became foster parents because they wanted to change a child's life. They kind of wanted to be the heroes of the story. They wanted to give this child the safe place that they never had. And as they began to learn about foster care, they realized there wasn't just a child there, but there was a family. And in this child's case, there was a family who was learning and working hard to care for them. And so they shift their mindset. This isn't about us getting a child. This is about our family being given to a child. And there was this one moment in particular where their foster daughter's birth mom was having a really hard day. She was kind of at the end of herself. She's like, I can't do this. I, I can't continue. And Brian and Bethany met them in a Taco Bell parking lot. And Brian put his hands on her and just began to preach the gospel over her. You are this child's mom and you can, and you have what it takes to parent her. It was interactions like that that led to that child being reunified with her mom in 2017. And this last year, after years and years of Brian and Bethany faithfully, relationally coming to this mom, she gave her life to Jesus. And her and her daughter are plugged into a church, growing in faith, and their life has been transformed. And that is, is just kind of the picture, I think, of what God has call us to do. As, as the band comes up, my wife and I, we, we are our foster parents as well. And 
Some kids we've been able to help reunify with their family. And my, my oldest daughter, Nora Grace, needed a forever home. And she's been one of the great joys of my life. But there's a lot of responsibility in being a foster parent. And so we have a ministry here called Foster the City. And Foster the City helps wrap me and my wife and Lauren and Steve Wetzel, the other foster parent in the community, with a team of support friends who bring us meals and pray for us regularly and who help us just carry the responsibility of fostering. And when we were having our team meeting to kind of launch this team, my wife and I just began to share with the group how each child we have in our home who moves on for whatever reason, they take a piece of our heart with them. There's a piece of us that we're giving away as they transition to what's next. And my good friend, Michael Rowe, paused and thanked me for sharing that and just said, Ryan, I want you to know that you can take a piece of us too. It was just this beautiful picture of the gospel as Stacy and I give ourselves away to these beautiful, amazing foster kids. Our community is wrapped around us, supporting us, giving us a piece of themselves to help us persevere in serving other people. And that is a picture of what we're called to do, church. Each and every one of us are called to give not only the gospel message away, but ourselves away, relationally loving and serving others. And as a community, we wrap around one another and we encourage and support one another as we give a piece of ourselves away to those serving. Church, we serve a God who has come to us relationally at great cost to himself. And when we allow that truth to work in us, it will flow through us and we will give ourselves away relationally to people who desperately need the love that we have. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you have come to us to love us and to save us. Thank you, God, that living a life of service to you and to other people, there's so much adventure and meaning and joy and expectation. I thank you, God, that serving you is not boring, but Lord, it's a life of joy. It's a life of risk. And I pray, God, that we would we would get that as a church, that I would get that as a follower of Jesus. And Lord, we would grow in taking risks and serving other people because you took the greatest risk in serving and loving us. God, I pray for people who feel that God's love is distant. The way I described God coming to us is not their experience. Holy Spirit, would you fall on them today? And would you communicate your love for them in deep ways, Lord? Lord, for those of us who have not been allowing the gospel to flow from us, Lord, we repent. This is why we were saved. We were saved to know you and to minister your love to others. And if we have been slack or lazy in that area, Lord, we repent and we say, teach us, God. Teach us to love and to serve the way that you have loved and served us. 
Thank you, God, that you're patient with us as we make mistakes and fail and forget and turn in on ourselves. You are just so kind and so patient, and we need that, God. And so, Lord, have your way in our church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.